Mark 15, 33 through 34. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Yahi, Yahi, Lama Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Over the last two Sundays, we've been reflecting on the seven things that Jesus said on the cross, which we've been reminding ourselves of so far tonight. And over the last two weeks, we've reflected on all but one of the sayings. And tonight, we're pausing to consider that last remaining one. It's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt forsaken by God? I think most of us, if we live long enough, eventually reach a point where we find ourselves asking, God, where are you? A cancer diagnosis that persists despite treatment and prayer? God, where are you? A job loss right when money is tight and the kids need it the most? God, where are you? A spouse or a partner who leaves and breaks our hearts, leaving us with more responsibilities than we could possibly handle on our own. God, where are you? A loved one who's stuck in a pattern of addiction, relapses. God, where are you? A miscarriage after years of not being able to conceive. God, where are you? A sense of depression or anxiety that just won't go away? God, where are you? And even if our own lives are spared these sufferings, many of us end up asking the same question when we see these kinds of things happening to other people. Now, God, where are you? Sometimes we ask the question when we hear about the horrors that are going on on the other side of the world, right? Just this last week, many of us saw the pictures of people in Syria, children included, who died after a chemical bombing. God, where are you? And throughout history, millions of lives have been lost prematurely to war and famine and plagues. God, where are you? And some people find themselves asking, God, where are you a lot? And some people eventually decide on an answer. Nowhere. They see the suffering in the world, and they feel it in themselves, and they decide, you know, God probably doesn't exist. And if he does, he just doesn't seem that concerned with our lives. In our modern world, this argument against God's existence actually has a lot of persuasive power. It's called the problem of evil. If you've ever been to a philosophy 101 class, you've heard it. Uh, people find it compelling. How can a good, powerful, loving God exists in a world that's so filled with evil and suffering. Interestingly, that argument has actually never seemed to be much of a concern uh, in the ancient world. And even today, it doesn't seem to be too much of a concern to people in poor areas 
where suffering is a regular part of life. I remember when I visited Haiti back in 2012. This is not long after a really devastating earthquake hit that spot. And I was so surprised by how much faith in God the people I met had. I personally was preoccupied with the question before I went, how does a loving God allow things like this to happen? You know, a massive earthquake in an area where people are already poor and oppressed, and then this. But the people that I met didn't seem to be asking that question. The people that I met just seemed to be trusting God to meet their needs day by day. They had a deep love for him and trust in him. So I'm not exactly sure why that is. Maybe it has something to do with when Jesus taught that blessed are the poor in spirit. But the fact is that for those of us who are part of the world in this place and this time, particularly near a college campus, something like the problem of evil feels like a very strong argument against the existence of a loving God. So what can we say? You know, what can we say to people who challenge our belief in God with the problem of evil? And more importantly, what can we say to ourselves when we feel overwhelmed by suffering in our own lives or by the suffering of those around us and throughout the world? What do we do when we find ourselves asking, God, where are you? Well, there's a couple things we could say. We could talk about human freedom. We could talk about how a, a loving God allows some measure of freedom, even though it causes evil and suffering in the world. Because without freedom, there's no real love, right? And we could talk about God's ways being higher than our ways. He's all-knowing, we're not. So clearly God could have reasons for doing things that we don't fully understand. We could talk about how God promises that even though things are not right right now, one day they will be, and all of it's going to feel worth it once we get to the end of the story. And those are all really valuable points to make. But what I want to talk about tonight is what I think is the most important point of them all. And it's a point that kind of turns the whole conversation upside down. It's a point that has the power to silence our most angry objections against God and his way of operating. And that point is the fact that when God came to earth as a human being, when he incarnated himself in human flesh and walked among us as Jesus Christ, there came a point when he also said, God, where are you? It was that moment on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Over the last few weeks, we've been emphasizing a passage in the book of Hebrews, which tells us that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So in other words, Jesus gives us a better idea of what God is like than anything else. You know, any concept of God that we have in our heads, any image of him, needs to be subordinated to Jesus Christ. And not only that, but the cross, which we're reflecting on tonight, is the climax of his ministry. And so how profound and mysterious and strange is it that when the exact representation of God's being reaches the climax of his ministry, he cries out, God, where are you? If we're supposed to look to Jesus to help us to understand what God is like, 
Well, then what do we learn about God when God says, God, where are you? That's the question that I want to wrestle with tonight. And I can think of at least three things that that moment tells us about God. And there are three things that are all very relevant to that question of the problem of evil. And the first one is this. The first one is that God has suffered. The Christian God, the God that we worship, is a God who was crucified. Right? He's a God who was betrayed by his friends. He was a God who felt abandoned. So our God is not a God who just creates a world and then sits back and observes it and watches it like it's some entertaining movie. Our God is a God who, as Jesus Christ, suffers along with the world that he's created. So where is God when we're asking, God, where are you? If the cross reveals who God is, then he's right there. He's right there with us. Now, the first thing that this moment teaches us, that God suffers, leads us to the second thing that it teaches us, which is that, and this might be a simplistic way of putting it, but God must have a good reason for allowing the evil and suffering in the world. We might never be able to fully grasp what that reason is, but we have reason to believe that he has a good one. And here's why. Because the evil and suffering that God allows leads him to suffer too. Allowing evil and suffering costs God something. It doesn't just cost us something. It costs God something. That's what we see through the cross. And that gives us reason to trust that he has a good reason for allowing the suffering and evil that he does. You know, if someone said to me, you need to go fight a war, but they weren't willing to fight in the war themselves, I would be very doubtful that there was a good reason for going to fight that war. If they were just like, you go do it. But if the person who told me to fight the war was leading the charge into battle, I'd be much more likely to trust that they had a good motive for doing what they were doing. Because if they're willing to suffer, and maybe even willing to die for the cause, then maybe that cause is really worth it. And because of the cross, we see that God is not like a person who just says, go to war, and then stays behind. Right? God leads the charge. Here's another way of thinking about it. Imagine for a second that you're God. Not a, not a good thing to imagine for a long period of time, but just for a second. And imagine that you have the power to create all kinds of different worlds. Would you choose to pick the world where you end up crucified? Probably not. But if you did, I bet you'd have a really good reason for it. If God is allowed for a world of suffering, even though he experiences suffering himself, we can trust that he's doing it for a good reason even when we can't make sense of it. And then finally, the third thing this moment teaches us, this moment when God says, God, where are you? Is that God truly does love us. He truly does love us. Because God doesn't enter into this profound experience of suffering just to suffer. Right? He doesn't just do it for no reason. The Bible tells us that when it comes to Christ's suffering, he chooses to experience it so that through it, he might save us. God's not a masochist. He doesn't suffer just to suffer. 
He suffers in order to pay our ransom. He suffers so that we can have life to the full. He suffers because he so loves the world and is not willing that any should perish. And when someone is willing to suffer for your sake, that's when you know that they truly love you and that they're with you. And that's what God does on the cross. Now, Good Friday is a time to reflect on Christ's suffering and the price that was paid for our sin. And even though we all know where the story is going, we don't want to celebrate prematurely. Before the resurrection comes the cross. And I don't want to skip through the cross too quickly. But I do want us to notice that when Jesus said those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was not hopeless. He felt abandoned. He felt forsaken. He felt deep and profound grief. But he still wasn't hopeless. Because when Jesus said those words, he was actually quoting from the opening line of a psalm, Psalm 22. That's the first line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the same psalm that we looked at if you were here last Sunday. And it's a psalm that remarkably, even though it was written hundreds of years before Jesus, it describes details from his crucifixion. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a remarkable description hundreds of years before that we see fulfilled when Jesus is on the cross. It talks about hands and feet being pierced uh, and lots being cast to divide up clothing and many more details that we see in the crucifixion narrative. And so it's clear that when Jesus said this opening line to Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he wasn't just referring to the opening line, he was referencing the whole psalm. He was saying, look at the whole thing. And what I want us to recognize, even now on Good Friday, is that that psalm ends very differently than it starts. It doesn't end with grief and abandonment. It ends with victory and joy. The psalmist says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. It's a dramatic shift from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, isn't it? And so even when Jesus was expressing the deepest depths of his suffering, he was at the same time also expressing a hope and confidence in the Lord hope and confidence in his father. He was expressing hope and confidence that his story would not end with him feeling forsaken because that's not how Psalm 22 ends either. And because that's not where Jesus' story ended, we can have hope even in the midst of our darkest times that that's not where our story is going to end either. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you would be so willing to enter into our situation and our experience uh, to reach a point where you cried out, God, where are you?
God, I pray that you would help us to understand just how amazing that is, how profound that is. And God, I thank you that through you, we have a hope and a confidence that that is not where the story ends. Lord, I pray that on this Good Friday, we would have a profound sense of the love that you have for us, a love that we don't deserve, a love that we can't earn. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.